think one of the reasons that the oil companies are fighting these cases so vigorously, and they are, they're raising you know every conceivable defense they can, is because if one of them succeeds, it can really open the floodgate, so to speak, to a whole bunch of additional lawsuits. Right now we have, you know, in the teens of municipalities that are suing, but any municipality that faces harm from climate change, and that is virtually every municipality, could potentially have a claim against oil companies. You don't see like cancer medicine denial. You know, you don't see like space science denial. You only really see climate denial. And that's not, that's not a mistake. That's not a, it's not a fluke that's orchestrated. Um, and it was orchestrated primarily by the fossil fuel industry. Fossil fuel companies are on trial. This fall, oil giant ExxonMobil went to court facing charges that the company had lied to shareholders and to the public about the costs and consequences of climate change. And that's just one of several legal cases seeking to hold oil and gas firms responsible for their contribution to global warming. As we discussed with UCLA law professor Ann Carlson, the litigation could cost fossil fuel companies billions of dollars and fundamentally change the way the world approaches energy production. Meanwhile, lawsuits aren't the only venue for challenging the fossil fuel industry. This battle is also being waged in the court of public opinion, which has put a spotlight on how oil companies can promote their positions on Twitter. In this episode, we also hear from journalist Emily Atkin about why she and others are heated about the oil industry's political ads. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. Presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I am Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. As per usual, I am joined by Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, and Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. So as we record this, the COP25 climate summit is taking place in Madrid, Spain. The summit was supposed to take place in Chile, and we actually had the president of Chile, Sebastian Piñera, on this show to discuss his goals for the meeting. But as has been widely reported, there's domestic political unrest in Chile, which prevented the country from hosting the climate conference this year. Now, there are many political dynamics at play in Chile that go beyond the scope of this podcast, but it's worth noting that protesters are rising up against Chile's neoliberal economic model. And that's relevant to the COP25 meeting in Madrid because some of the climate activists there are using this moment to condemn neoliberalism for what they call the commodification of the earth. But the main takeaway here so far is that the world is off track in reducing the emissions necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change. In fact, global carbon emissions continue to rise, according to several new reports. In a recent press conference, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who has also been on this podcast, called global efforts so far utterly inadequate. Now, we know President Trump is pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement, but there were still some American politicians in Madrid, some Democrats to be specific, making the case that the U.S. is still engaged on climate issues. So, Brandon, did you follow that? And if so, what did you think? I did. I think it's important that uh, Speaker Pelosi went to Madrid to say, we're still in on the Paris Agreement, even though Trump is in the process to withdraw us. 
We're hoping to have an outcome in the presidential election next year that will allow us to stay in. And I think she's communicating that what's happening on the state and local level, there's a lot of progress happening there on clean energy policy to demonstrate that the U.S. is still in this. And, you know, as the U.N. Secretary General said, you know, he said the point of no return is now no longer on the horizon. It is in sight and hurtling toward us. And so some of these reports that came out last week that talked about this emissions gap from the U.N. that are really terrifying numbers may have been lost in the holiday. You know, people are out eating turkey with their families. But this is really uh, drastic. Yeah. And I do think it's important to note that a number of countries have stepped up and said they will do more to raise their targets. And next year is actually the year where uh, stakeholders will, will revisit the Paris climate goals officially. And several countries, I think even close to 70, have said they will indeed up their targets. But those countries and those entities only make up something like 8% of global emissions. And so the pressure here really comes back to the US, China, India, Indonesia, some of the major emitters. And Honestly, fossil fuels are really, I think, the elephant in the room here. Like, it's how you not only can transition to clean, but how you reduce emissions from those sectors. Because as Amy Harder just reported this week on a new um, MIT climate simulator that was released, basically, we're just adding on salad to pasta. We're not actually reducing sort of the pasta. And if the goal is to lose weight, or in this case, reduce emissions, you have to eventually cut down that, cut out those carbs. Good analogy. (laughs) That was all her. (laughs) <laughs> Shane, what have, what have you seen so far out of the climate talks? Anything interesting from the Republican side? Yeah, no, nothing from the Republican side. And I don't, you know, particularly care a whole lot about um, Nancy Pelosi going there. I think that's too important. But what I do find interesting is around this discussion and around um, the launch, and I know we'll talk about this some other time, of, of John Kerry's initiative. He's been doing a lot of press and talking about how emissions in a lot of these countries not only are going not are not going down, but are going up. And also some of these um, countries are planning to build new fossil fuel infrastructure that would make it you know, more difficult to, to reduce emissions in the future. So I'm looking at the United States and going, you know, even if we increase efficiency and advanced technologies that would get us you know, closer to the goals that were agreed to in Paris or closer to you know, maybe even more aggressive goals that we could meet here in decarbonization, I don't see the global community, even though they're still, quote unquote, in the Paris Agreement, taking the steps or making the investments they need to make to get there. Um, So I'm a little bit more concerned, I think, than you all are about what the global community is doing, but but more optimistic, I guess, about what's going on here at home or what what could go on here at home. Well, not if Trump's reelected. There was a Rhodium Group analysis on this that supported many of the things that you said, Julia, where they basically identified five hotspots around the world as to what's going to determine the future on this and, you know, what happens in China, what happens in India. And one of those top five were the U.S. presidential election in 2020. And it could, the difference between Trump and a Democrat could be 1.5 to 2.7 gigatons of carbon emissions, which, uh, you know, gigatons, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a lot. Like mm-hmm. back to the future, gigawatts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Giga is big. It's a big, it's a big number. <laughs> yeah. Well, one other thing I'll flag uh, about the COP25 this year is that apparently the focus is also shifting to oceans, which have been usually left out of climate discussions. We talk a lot about energy and we don't talk about oceans much here, but they are the biggest place to sequester carbon currently. And our oceans are becoming more polluted at the same time. And so that's a very international climate issue that we could maybe see some new initiatives around. But Altogether, I think a very tense moment for all the reasons we have addressed. The U.S. pulling back on the agreement, but also emissions rising globally. 
one last thing just to mention that Axios did highlight uh, with Madrid is uh, Spanish oil company Repsol has decided to go zero carbon emissions by 2050 and is writing down over $5 billion in assets. So it's not Exxon or Chevron, uh, but that is definitely uh, a, a change in the oil industry. And I wonder what attention that's going to get from the rest of the oil majors. That is what's interesting, I think, is like countries decide what is happening in the private sector as these climate talks take place, because there's a lot of pressure, public pressure and political pressure on those firms and now actually market pressure too to decarbonize. And that's what I think is going to be interesting about this World War Zero initiative, which Shane alluded to moments ago that Secretary Kerry is leading. And it's specifically bringing together a new coalition, a bipartisan coalition of world leaders, military leaders, Hollywood celebrities and other grassroots groups to hold over 10 million climate conversations, they say. And I bring that up because the sticking point here is whether or not supporters of natural gas will be welcomed into the fold. So. Uh, former Ohio Governor John Kasich is among the members here, and he said he would not join if this group would would ban fracking, for instance. So again, you see this conversation, I think, really centering on what is the future of fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry. And it's going to be harder and harder to escape that. As much as we love talking about the good things, the benefits of clean energy and all that, fossil fuels, I think, are really the sticking point. And just how low carbon these companies can be, I think, is still very much TBD. Yeah, and Brandon, I think your your point about Repsol is a good one. I've long thought, and I think we've talked about in the podcast before, that some of these larger oil companies could actually end up being, if they choose to be, the leaders of the clean energy transition because they have so much capital. And I've long wondered, if you're an ExxonMobil or a Chevron or one of these really, really large, well-capitalized companies, what do you really care if you're selling you know, petroleum fuels or electrons or, or whatever it, whatever else it is? why not just be one of the world's largest energy companies? Why differentiate between what specific type of energy you're selling? So I think you might see maybe not the U.S. majors, but some larger you know, oil and gas companies we've seen with Equinor, you know, investing in wind and other clean technologies, start to realize that they can keep their market share, but market products that, that people want and are starting to look to you know, more into the future. I think the issue here is what's happening today versus the history of the fossil fuel industry and and big oil in particular. As we will discuss in this episode, there are legal trials taking place right now over how much oil companies knew about climate science decades ago and yet waged public campaigns saying that climate change was not an issue and touting their record on decarbonization, which was not followed up with action. And this is now carrying real legal weight, as we'll explore today. And so I think a lot of people are not taking big oil very seriously, or at least they're having a hard time trusting that this industry is making a good faith effort to move into the clean energy sector because of that history. And another piece of this is plastics. One thing we don't talk about much here is how big oil is diversifying into petrochemicals and in fact increasing its play in that market even as it moves into clean energy solutions in the electrification world. And so what is the net net in terms of our oil use? We won't necessarily get into that all today. We're going to talk more about those legal cases I mentioned. But first, I want to turn to a conversation I had with Emily Atkin, who is an independent journalist for the newsletter Heated and a contributing editor at The New Republic. I talked to her about why there's so much anger toward big oil today and why these legal cases are taking place. After that, we'll turn to our interview with Ann Carlson, a professor of environmental law at UCLA, and we'll get a detailed look at where the court cases against Exxon and other fossil fuel companies currently stand. But first, here's my conversation with Emily. 
Emily, thanks so much for coming on Political Climate. So that our listeners know, you recently moved from a full-time position to a contributing editor role at The New Republic, and you launched your newsletter, Heated. So first off, congratulations on that move. Thank you. I actually did something similar with this podcast when I quit my full-time job, and so I can kind of identify with where you're coming from there. It's cool to know that you can do something like that too, right? It's just like, oh, I... It, it it works. Well, he did totally works. Uh, I am a frequent reader, and I know that you've been really successful in your reporting so far, which we'll get into some of that and some of the results of what you have discovered. But first, you know, I wanted to talk about the concept of heated, because as you've written and talked about before, you launched it because you're angry about the climate emergency. So describe that emotion, describe the impetus for launching this in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have been covering climate change for a little over six years now, and I'm always seeing this debate about how, whether we should be hopeful or whether we should be gloom and doom and grief, and I never hear whether or not we should be angry. Um, And that's always primarily the emotion that I've felt, because as a reporter on this subject for that many years, you see a lot that we've known about the dire state of this issue for a long time about the emergency that we're facing if we don't do something. And yet people in power, the people that we've tasked to do something, have consistently shirked those responsibilities. Climate change is such a system-wide problem. It can't be tackled on an individual scale. It has to be tackled by our biggest systems, our corporations, our governments, our most powerful people. And they've just consistently decided to not take up that responsibility in favor of a short-term profit, in favor of some other short-term thing. And now we're in this position where we have these dire warnings from the IPCC and other scientists all over the world saying, oh, we only have 11 years before we can make these drastic cuts to give us a 50% chance of avoiding the worst impacts. And, you know, we could have had, we could have had 40 years, we could have had 50 years, but we didn't. And that That makes me angry. You know, we have a system of where we're supposed to be able to hold people accountable. And I wanted to devote my career to holding people accountable for this so that so that we don't we aren't all screwed. Um, And so that's why I started the newsletter. Well, I reached out for this episode because um, I know you're specifically angry at the fossil fuel industry. And I think you've been pretty eloquent in the way of describing, you know, why people really are so heated right now against this uh, this sector. Well, the fossil fuel industry is our biggest, our most major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, which means it's our biggest cause of climate change. We depend on fossil fuels right now for energy, but fossil fuels are not the only source of energy that we can, that we can have to produce the energy we need in our lives. Fossil fuel companies have known for many, many years, over 30 years, uh, that their product had the potential to, if overused, cause drastic damage to the planet, to ecosystems, to human life. And when they found that out, instead of grappling with that information and making business decisions to transition away from the use of fossil fuels into renewables or make themselves another type of energy company, they decided to actively hide that information from the public, actively fund, pour billions of dollars into a disinformation campaign that would seep into American politics and make it impossible for half of our legislators, that that is those in the Republican Party, to do anything related to climate change. Because if they did, they would would be 
targeted with the ire of the fossil fuel industry with millions of dollars against uh, their re-election campaigns. And so the reason that we have political stagnation on climate change it had for so long is because of this disinformation campaign. There's a reason why climate denial is a thing and other types of science denial are not a thing. You don't see like cancer medicine denial. You know, you don't see like space science denial. You only really see climate denial. And that's not, that's not a mistake. That's not a, it's not a fluke that's orchestrated. Um, and it was orchestrated primarily by the fossil fuel industry. To go back to your reporting, uh, I wanted to talk about the the Twitter policy. You recently made news with your reporting on Twitter's new ad policy because it put a ban on advertised tweets about specific candidates and by corporations and other groups uh, related to political issues. But as you discovered, there are some issues with this, uh, specifically that it benefited fossil fuel companies like Exxon and, and it hurt uh, environmental groups. So can you explain exactly what you found there? Yeah, so... What I found with Twitter's ad policy, just just going through uh, just going through the ads. I don't know if if your listeners know this, but there's this great tool on Twitter where you it's called the Twitter Ad Transparency Tool, where you can just look through every single political ad or every single ad that's run, right? And so I was just going through and looking at um, looking at Exxon's ads, right? Which which ones they've done. And I noticed that so many of them were just not labeled political because if they're an issue ad, they get this little ding that says political issue. And all of Exxon's, almost all of Exxon's tweets about how they promote renewable energy or how they are working on climate solutions are, they're not labeled political ads, even though that those ads are selling an explicitly political idea. Uh, I talked to uh, an expert from Harvard about this who said that these are the definition of political ads because Exxon's not selling a product in these ads. They're selling an idea. We are part of the solution for climate change. Look at all this stuff we're doing. So under the new ad policy, Exxon would still be allowed to run these ads, which you know a lot of people would call greenwashing ads, right? ads to make them look more environmentally friendly than they are, whereas climate groups, climate nonprofits would not be able to run ads saying, we should stop climate change. Um, and I just wanted to illustrate how the playing field would all of a sudden not be even. Um, and it caused much more of a stir than I expected. <laughs> yeah, well, it really got it got Twitter to actually reevaluate its policy, right? It did. I mean, you know, Jack Dorsey didn't say Emily Atkins article did this, um, but, it but he was thinking caught the it. attention of <clears throat> caught the attention of Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren tweeted about it. And then Jack Dorsey responded to Elizabeth Warren saying, we're going to take this into consideration. And then like a week and a half later, they changed the policy to allow issue at. So what does this mean? This means that environmental groups can promote their tweets related to, say, combating climate change, but the same policy still stands for oil companies where they can also promote their tweets as well? Right. So oil companies can still run their greenwashing ads. They can still, but but the playing field is a little more even. Now, it's, it is sort of more, there are more layers to it uh, that the new ad policy kind of leaves open more more questions than it answers. 
but that is the basic gist. Um, I'm kind of looking into right now what some of the other implications are from the specifics of the new policy, because there's all these things now where it's like you, if you're an issue advertiser, you have to get certified and, you know, it's still, it's still true that Exxon's ads are not labeled political, so they don't have to get certified to run these political ads, right? And so why doesn't Twitter consider um, oil company ads saying how green they are to be political? Why don't they have to go through the same process that an issue advertiser, like a climate issue advertiser, would have to go through? So right now I'm trying to figure out what, what that process looks like, how burdensome it is. You know, I've been talking to this green energy company who's saying it's this burdensome process to have to get certified as an issue advertiser so that they can say, buy our wind energy. So, you know, how is Twitter treating oil companies differently than renewable energy companies, differently than climate groups? That's sort of something I'm continuing to look into. It's not, it's complicated. (laughs) That's super interesting, especially on the company versus company element of it. If you have a fossil fuel company and a and a corporation that sells renewables, why would they be treated differently? I do think that's interesting. And I guess it speaks to the politicized nature of climate change today. Just that topic is somehow now being put into buckets of left or right when it's just sort of science. It is, but it's become political. And this is the point I make all the time. It's it's political because of the fossil fuel industry. I wrote this article for the newsletter a while back, just outlining some things that were happening in 1989. 30 years ago. Um, And this was before the disinformation campaign started. And it was right when climate change started to become a hot button issue. James Hansen, the NASA scientist, testified before Congress saying the greenhouse effect is here. And Republicans and Democrats immediately started working together on climate change legislation. And it made real headway. Um, But that same year, a coalition of fossil fuel companies formed a large group uh, to start uh, influencing Republican Republican legislators to get them to not pursue climate change policies because, as you know, climate change policies negatively affect fossil fuel companies. So all of those efforts were scrapped. We never had climate change legislation. You know, it climate change is a political issue because of disinformation campaigns led and funded by fossil fuel companies. That's all I'm saying. That's what I'm pissed off about. <laughs> well, what about where we stand in the 2020 election today. We've t- we've heard we've heard some of the Democratic candidates propose some pretty big, bold uh, climate policies. And some of them have talked about, quote, you know, making polluters pay. Is that at all encouraging to you? Um, well, I think that accountability measures are really important. Um, and I think it's really interesting that we're talking about them on the campaign trails now, especially because, I mean, I was a campaign reporter for the 2016 election, I wasn't even just covering climate change. I was covering everything. I was fo- I was following candidates around. Uh, I went to Iowa way too many times, and um, I and I never heard about anything really beyond climate change is a problem that we have to solve. The fact that candidates are talking about holding polluters accountable for their disinformation campaign is like mind blowing to me. Just four years later, you know, but you know it. It is certainly encouraging that our leading presidential candidates, um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are the most outspoken about fossil fuel accountability. Um, Bernie Sanders often says that he wants to hold fossil fuel companies criminally liable for 
lying and promoting a disinformation campaign because and his his reasoning is that you know the effects of the lying has me, has meant that we're now much more susceptible to very economically damaging climate impacts these are climate impacts that are going to cost taxpayers you and me quite a bit of money should not they should not the the people who put us in this position be held accountable for it there's a question whether or not that should be civil liability criminal liability but it's it's all out there and yeah it's it's encouraging it's encouraging that we're talking about it like going after the drug maker for creating all those terrible side effects or going after the tobacco companies for giving people lung cancer right yeah an analogy that is that is used and i think we're going to explore more with our our next guest um emily thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate your perspective yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate your guys' perspective, too. Before moving on, I'll note that I actually had a much longer conversation with Emily. We delved into things like the controversy around David Victor, a climate advisor to Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. We also discussed how some oil companies are diversifying into clean energy and what that means. And I asked her about her journalistic approach to covering climate change, given that it is now such a political issue. And I wanted to know how she generally confronts biases. It was a really interesting conversation and got at a lot of questions that were on the top of my mind. And I appreciate Emily for taking the time to speak with me. And so I'll be sharing that longer conversation over the holiday break. So look out for it on the podcast feed. I think it's worth a listen. In this next segment of the show, Brandon, Shane, and I speak to Ann Carlson, faculty co-director at the UCLA Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. We discuss the slew of legal cases up against fossil fuel companies, and she weighs in on where she thinks these lawsuits are headed. We should note that Ann provides pro bono consulting to some of the plaintiffs in the climate litigation. Here's what she had to say. So let's start from the beginning. Anne, could you explain to us why you think cities and states and other stakeholders are taking this approach to combating climate change by, by suing these fossil fuel companies? I think there are several reasons that cities and counties and in a couple of instances, states are taking on oil companies about climate change. One is I think that information has come out in the last several years that shows that oil companies knew that climate change was going to occur as much as 50 years ago, had their own scientists studying those problems, and then engaged in a campaign of disinformation to try to persuade the American public that climate change wasn't real. At the same time, they were making internal decisions that have really raised questions about whether they should be held liable for their behavior. So one thing they did is that they spent money fortifying their own assets against climate change, doing things like raising oil platforms in order to protect against storm surge that would increase as a result of rising temperatures, and at the same time are trying to persuade the American public that climate change isn't real. They also, it is alleged by the state of New York and the state of Massachusetts, used internal accounting mechanisms that minimize the risk of investing in projects that would have high levels of greenhouse gas emissions while representing something different to investors. And this is uh, Shane jumping in here. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I read about, I did not watch uh, the entire testimony, nor did I read the transcript. But when Rex Tillerson testified on that point, 
He explained it as though it were a common business practice to keep, you know, one set of internal books for long-term planning purposes and another set of financials, um, you know, on, on ongoing sort of uh, investments for investors. But when he testified, uh, everything I read indicated that he didn't seem ashamed of this or, or like it was something trying to hide, but, but rather just regular business. Can you expand on what they actually did and, and why that might be considered um you know, not consistent with the law rather than than just regular business practice? Right. As I understand the allegations from the state of New York, and that's the case that has proceeded to trial now. So that's where we have all of this evidence. Internally, Exxon was minimizing the risk of investments in big projects that resulted in a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. The tar sands in Canada is the best example. But the state is arguing that what they were saying to the outside world is those investments are, in fact, um, we, we've accounted for them by using a different number. And so we're actually assessing the risk that is appropriate. The state of New York says you should have been telling shareholders the numbers you were actually using. I think it remains to be seen from the ruling from the judge who heard the case whether Exxon's defense, which is this is just normal business practice, is a valid one or whether this in fact was material information that misled investors in a way that harmed the rate of return they were getting from Exxon stock. So just to clarify here, we've, we've talked about this New York case and you mentioned that it has gone to trial. Could you give us a brief rundown of some of the other major lawsuits at play here? Yes, there's a case that's somewhat related to the New York case filed by the Attorney General of the state of Massachusetts that makes similar allegations, although under different law, because this is state law. So the New York case is under a New York statute called the Martin Act. The Massachusetts Attorney General has brought a similar case under Massachusetts law. But she has also included other allegations about consumer protection, alleging that Exxon has misled consumers about the dangers that its product causes in releasing greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. So that's kind of one category of cases, these investor uh, cases that misled investors, and then in the Massachusetts case, adding on consumers. But the other set of cases is brought by mostly cities and counties, although one state has joined, the state of Rhode Island. And these cases allege that the oil companies have caused a public nuisance. They also allege some additional what we call causes of action, but the public nuisance one is the one that's getting the most attention. And the argument here is that the oil companies emitted greenhouse gases knowing that those greenhouse gases would cause harm. They misled the public into believing that that harm was caused by their behavior. And that is already causing damages to municipalities and again to states around the country in the form of things like sea level rise, uh, increased heat waves, increased wildfires, drought, hurricanes, etc. So in those cases, the municipalities in the state of Rhode Island are seeking damages to pay for the damage they've already experienced and also to pay for fortification to prevent some harm from occurring. So for example, a sea level rise, you could potentially move people away from the coast, you could build seawalls to try to prevent storm surges from inundating houses and other you know, important land uses. So those are really the two major categories of cases. 
And so is it fair to think about these two categories as one, the public nuisance lawsuits you just described, and the other one is the the other one can be described as fraud investigations are those kind of the categories? I think it's fair to categorize these cases as fraud against investors and consumers. That's the New York and Massachusetts case. And in the case of the public nuisance case, oil companies causing harm to municipalities and to taxpayers of the state of Rhode Island as well. On the uh, on the nuisance side, in the New York City case against Chevron, um, my understanding, again, and, and not having been involved in these proceedings, is that what New York City argued was that they're not claiming that they have jurisdiction and they're not preempting um, or trying to preempt federal jurisdiction. Rather, they're claiming this is very different than a regulation or a new standard that's inconsistent with federal law, but rather they're just trying to make a company pay for damages uh, that resulted from their actions that they've not had to internalize under current law. What do you make of that argument? Do you think that that in, in higher courts it would withstand scrutiny to say uh, this is actually, you know, basically a recompense for something you did in the past? We're not trying to to get into federal jurisdiction at all. It's very clear that the plaintiffs in these cases are trying to bring these cases or are bringing these cases under state law. And with the exception of New York City, are keeping trying to keep these cases in state court. There was a series of cases that was filed in the early 2000s, mostly, although not exclusively, in federal court, alleging what's called a federal common law nuisance. Common law really just means that the law that it's based on was created by court cases and by judges, not by a legislature. And the United States Supreme Court held that those federal common law nuisance cases are preempted by a federal law, the Clean Air Act. These are very different cases. They're brought under state law. They're brought under state nuisance law. The Supreme Court has not said that state nuisance cases are preempted by the Clean Air Act. And in fact, I think it's safe to say that the plaintiffs have the better argument here that these cases are not preempted. But the oil company defendants have been seeking to remove the cases into federal court on the theory that federal judges are more likely to be concerned about some constitutional questions, and also maybe we'll find that the cases are preempted. One last question for me, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm hogging up all the time, but it's right to the point you just made. As some of the conversations I've had with conservative lawyers or, or lawyers who maybe don't want to see um, action against climate change have argued that if the Supreme Court were to overrule Massachusetts versus EPA or if Congress you know, was clear that the Clean Air Act was not intended to regulate greenhouse gases or, or the EPA you know, threw out their own endangerment finding under this administration, that could actually give some of these other courts a little more leeway because they would be making an affirmative statement that the Clean Air Act was not preemptive to some of these greenhouse gas uh, cases because they're, they're making a statement that they have no interest in jurisdiction. Is that a legitimate, um, you think, legal position or do you think the preemption under the Clean Air Act holds, even if an administration or even the Supreme Court says the Clean Air Act cannot be used to regulate greenhouse gases? It's pretty clear that if the Clean Air Act is not used to regulate greenhouse gases, if, for example, Massachusetts versus EPA is overturned, then the court case that held that federal common law nuisance cases are preempted by the Clean Air Act would no longer be valid because it is based on the idea that EPA is regulating greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act. So one risk, ironically, that conservative 
litigators, conservative policymakers interested in getting EPA out of the business of regulating greenhouse gases face is that these nuisance cases actually would take on more significance and would have an even greater likelihood of success. Yeah, I think people are starting to to see that. And and interestingly, I, I wasn't sure how much um, how valid those claims were, but it sounds like you're in agreement that that that's that would be the natural consequence of such an action. Absolutely, I'm in agreement with that. Shane is clearly using more of his uh, JD than I am. <laughs> yeah. I I, uh, I remember. Uh, I mean, while Shane can sometimes be a nuisance on the show, all I know, all I remember from law school is that uh, I don't have an actual claim against him, um, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's oh uh, relieving, I guess. Uh, and I wanted to take us in a different direction. Um, where where do you think what will be the impacts of this litigation? A lot of people have talked about uh, the tobacco industry uh, as uh, sort of an analogous scenario, where you know many of those lawsuits contributed to the branding of tobacco as being um, you know corrupt, as uh, spreading misinformation. Um, and there are, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in settlements. Do you think there will be settlements here? Where do you think, um, what impact do you think that these lawsuits will have on the fossil fuel industry in general? I think one of the reasons that the oil companies are fighting these cases so vigorously, and they are, they're raising, you know, every conceivable defense they can, is because if one of them succeeds, it can really open the floodgate so to speak, to a whole bunch of additional lawsuits. Right now we have, you know, in the teens of municipalities that are suing, but any municipality that faces harm from climate change, and that is virtually every municipality, could potentially have a claim against the oil companies if one of these cases were to succeed. That's not unlike the tobacco litigation, where for a long time the tobacco industry was successful in getting juries to find against individual plaintiffs who are alleging that their diseases had been caused by smoking. But once one of those cases hit, it really just changed the entire landscape. It led to attorneys general suing the tobacco companies and you know billions of dollars in settlements. So I think the potential for liability here is enormous. It's also worth noting, though, that these cases are big and they're novel. And right now we haven't seen one succeed, but we are entering in a new phase where a number of the cities have succeeded in getting the cases returned back to state court or have at least won a number of court battles and discovery is beginning. So another part of your question, I think, is about um, what happens reputationally to these companies. The tobacco companies clearly you know, became associated with not only selling a lethal product, but also concealing information about its harms. I think the more information that comes out about what the oil companies knew, when they knew it, and what they did about that information, the worse they look. So, you know, again, we now know that in the 1960s and 70s, the oil company scientists themselves were predicting that the amount of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, the amount of carbon dioxide parts per billion in the atmosphere, would be exactly where it is today. One of them predicted that there would be a superstorm off the coast of of uh, the Northeast that might inundate the city of New York. Well, that's already happened. And then despite knowing that, they then funded this multi-million dollar campaign to try to persuade the American public that climate change isn't real. We're going to see more of that kind of documentation. We're going to see oil company executives having to testify about what they knew and when they knew it. And that could do a lot to really 
continue to damage the reputation of the oil companies, which I think, frankly, has already taken it. It scare away investors, right? Because they see all this litigation happening, um, and that may dry up some of the investment for them. I think that's right. The oil companies are already seeing stock declines. That's in part because the risk that fossil fuel-based products essentially you know, evaporate out of existence as we try to transition to a clean, zero-carbon economy, that already imposes a lot of risk on fossil fuel companies. But if you add to that the potential for liability for damages that have already occurred and that will continue to occur with the accumulated greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, investment in oil companies becomes much less desirable. Yeah, well, I think it's that that point you made about the Exxon new fact. It's the it's the data that previously existed that I think is really driving a lot of the climate dialogue we see outside the courtroom and a lot of the, the distrust of these companies, as we've talked about on this show. You know, there's some really good faith efforts, I think, to invest in clean tech from these oil majors, particularly European ones. But a lot of people are just questioning that and and how legitimate that transition is, given what previous comments, um, I guess, oil companies have made and previous knowledge that they've had. And so it drives a lot of the international discussion. We talked this week about the COP25 taking place. And I think the idea of a, a global carbon price is being discussed. But unless a carbon price actually reduces oil use, will it even accomplish the goal, I think, is the hot button issue here. And uh, again, fossil fuels are really in the in the crosshairs. And I have a follow-up question, uh, Anne, on the the analogy that, that Brandon raised to cigarettes, because I thought about this quite a bit. And strictly as a legal matter, do you think, let's say that, that it was proven in court that they knew all of these things, and it was proven in court that they proactively hid those facts for fear of, you know, some sort of negative public backlash or investor backlash or, or just, you know, regulation or something like that. Do you think there's a strong enough cause and effect because several industries do emit carbon uh, to hold them liable compared to the cigarette companies where you're either smoking the cigarette or you're not, but you're not one of several emitters? Do you think that would would harm a plaintiff's ability to recover? Or do you think the cause and effect would be strong enough that if you can prove knowledge and misleading uh, of that knowledge, that would be enough to, to get a, a favorable ruling for a plaintiff? So those are great questions. It's worth actually being wonky here about what the legal doctrine is for nuisance. I'll just focus on California's nuisance statute, which is very similar to other states. Um, The language says that a defendant needs to be a substantial contributor to the interference with a public right. So that raises the question of what is a substantial interference? Because you're right that the burning of fossil fuels is not the only cause of climate change. It is, however, a very significant cause of climate change. And one of the things that we've seen developed over the course of the last several years is data about just how big a percentage of greenhouse gas emissions the majors, the oil majors are responsible for. And I think that gets plaintiffs over the threshold of, of this idea of substantial contributor you don't have to be the sole contributor. It's very clear under the uh, under do- the doctrine of nuisance. Um, and collectively, the defendants that are in these cases contributed something like 25% of greenhouse gas emissions over the course of the last 50 years. So I think that gets you over the threshold. The other thing that's, I think, related to your question about causation is, can you actually show 
that the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is causing the harms that the municipalities are complaining about. And that's going to be another big battleground. So the best evidence of the linkage between greenhouse gases and the harms that the cities are complaining about is with respect to sea level rise. So it turns out that there's very good evidence that there's a linear relationship between the more between the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the amount of sea level rise. And so there's very good sort of data for a court to conclude that sea level rise of, say, you know, six inches is caused by the accumulating greenhouse gas emissions and is causing the harms that the cities and counties are complaining about. Um, Hurricanes, there's good evidence that hurricanes have gotten much stronger, and you can measure that based on how much heat they're taking up out of the ocean. Um, Some of the other uh, harms that cities and counties are complaining about will require scientists to develop what's called attribution evidence. This idea, again, that climate change is causing the harms and by what percentage. So let's take wildfires. You know, of course, wildfires have always occurred in California. There's no question that climate change is making them more frequent and making them bigger and worse. By how much is going to be a question that the plaintiffs are going to have to address in as, if they get to a, you know, if they can, can get a court, if they can get that far in the litigation in order to assess damages against the defendant oil companies. And what happens if these lawsuits fail? Does it set a precedent there that would keep oil companies like this untouchable? What are we looking at in terms of the legal future? So one thing to note is that these cases are filed in a bunch of different states, and all each of these states has their own doctrine. So if one fails, say, you know, hypothetically in Colorado, that doesn't mean that the cases in Colorado or that in the cases in California fail or the cases in Maryland fail. Um, so these are going to be litigated extensively for quite a while, and we will see if one of them breaks through. Um, they, are, they are novel cases, and they are big cases, and they are asking courts to address a global problem of a magnitude like no other. And so, you know, they're risky, right? There is no guarantee that these cases win. If they do, however, get to the discovery stage, which is looking like they're going to, that's where we are now, and plaintiffs have an opportunity to question the executives of these oil companies about what they knew and when they knew it, to get documents that show what they knew and when they knew it, that, that's very powerful evidence in the court of a public opinion, not just in a regular court. We've already talked about the ways in which the reputations of oil companies you know, have never been great, but they seem particularly low now. And some of that is because of this evidence. As that evidence gets stronger and there's more of it about more companies, that has an effect whether or not the plaintiffs actually prevail in court. And this is Brandon again. Is there a chance that any of these cases will make it to the Supreme Court and then there's a scenario where uh, we could be harmed by Mitch McConnell stealing the the Supreme Court seat? So the question of whether these nuisance cases get to the Supreme Court is one where uh, it's always hard to make predictions. I think it's not terribly likely. And the reason... I think that's true is because, again, these are state court cases. They're not federal court cases. Put aside the city of New York, which for complicated reasons was filed in federal court. All the rest of them have been filed in state court. 
right now it looks like the question of whether they belong in state court is going in favor of the plaintiffs. I think we're likely to see court decisions in courts of appeal saying these are kind of garden variety state law claims. They don't belong in federal court. And so the Supreme Court is going to have less interest and less reason to take up a state common law nuisance case. This is not doesn't raise the kinds of questions that the Supreme Court is usually interested in. That is the interpretation of federal law or the interpretation of the federal constitution. Or a circuit court split. Boom. <laughs> Just dropping some Georgetown law knowledge. <laughs> You'll get a cookie later. Um, well, and you talked about the large scope of these cases. I wanted to briefly touch on another case that is Similarly, on climate change and, and very broad, it's brought by several young Americans um, that have actually sued several states and also the federal government over inaction on climate change. And they're saying that the government has failed to act, which is harming their future. So do you have a read on where those lawsuits stand? We did have some of the climate, uh, we did have some of the youth uh, plaintiffs on this show over the summer. Curious what your thoughts are on the significance of this type of lawsuit and where, where the action is right now. Sure. So Juliana versus the United States is the biggest of these what are called public trust lawsuits. It is currently in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, and we are awaiting a decision. So it's already been argued to the Ninth Circuit. And the question that the Ninth Circuit is facing, it's really facing two important questions. One is whether the plaintiffs have what's called standing to sue, whether they, they actually have the right to bring a lawsuit. And the second question is whether they have stated a claim that there is essentially a constitutional right to a safe and stable environment. If I were a betting person, I sadly would bet against the kids in the, in the case. There's a very big and novel constitutional claim. The relief that the 21 children are seeking is essentially to have the federal government get out entirely of the business of in any way subsidizing or supporting the extraction of fossil fuels, the use of fossil fuels in any way, and to develop a plan to address greenhouse gases and get the United States on a course to essentially produce a safe and stable climate. So if the Ninth Circuit rules against the plaintiffs, then I think the case will be done. If the Ninth Circuit rules in favor of the plaintiffs, I think you can bet that the United States Supreme Court will take that case and sadly will will reverse the Ninth Circuit and rule in favor of the federal government and against the kids. Finally, because we're here in California and we uh, get a lot of this news and we're hearing a lot from the governor about pushing back on the Trump administration over um, environmental regulation rollbacks. And the hot topic here is the rollback of the fuel economy standards and the withdrawal of the California waiver to set its own stricter fuel economy rules. So this is another case, you know, separate from oil companies, but it will actually, in fact, oil use here in the transportation sector. So what is the status of that case? Sure. So the, there are lots of um, environmental cases that California is pushing the Trump administration back against um, and has sued or is one of the states that is suing. But the one that is really active right now is that the federal government, the Trump administration, the EPA, have revoked California's special permission called a waiver under the Clean Air Act to issue its own 
greenhouse gas emission standards and standards to require that auto manufacturers produce a certain percentage of their fleet as zero emission vehicles. California has filed two separate lawsuits against the EPA and against the National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration, uh, arguing that the revocation of the waiver is inconsistent with federal law. Um, those cases were just filed, so uh, we should hear, we should get a response or an answer from the federal government soon. Um, but so we're at a pretty early stage in those cases. The Trump administration has not actually yet revoked the, what are called the, their joint greenhouse gas emission and fuel economy standards that the Obama administration issued to um, regulate greenhouse gas emissions and fuel economy from passenger automobiles from 2016 to 2025. The word on the street is that the Trump administration is going to either revoke, either going to freeze the standards or roll them back significantly for model years 2021 to 2025. But so far they haven't done so. That's in part because they created an administrative record that's a disaster and probably indefensible in federal court. So the, I think they've been redoing the record and trying to redo their justifications for the rollback. We, we keep hearing that that's going to happen sometime by the end of this year, but we've been hearing that for a while. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether the rules are actually either frozen or again, rolled back significantly within the next month or two. And this is Brandon. Uh, thanks again for your time today. I have a two part question. My final questions. When I went to law school, which was a long time ago, 18 years ago, there just I felt like there wasn't a lot of talk about environmental law. I'm wondering, uh, do you see what kind of interest are you seeing from young people at UCLA uh, into going into being the, the type this type of lawyer? And then my second question is, you know, there's the famous movie The Insider about the tobacco uh, litigation. That has Russell Crowe, Al Pacino. And so when they make the movie about this litigation on climate change, who is going to play you? <laughs> I'll let you guys figure that one out. Uh, but with respect to the first question, um, so I have been teaching at UCLA for 25 years. And the change in student interest in environmental issues from the time I began teaching in 1995 and today is orders of magnitude. It's just completely different. When I first started, I might have, I'd say anywhere from one to three students a year interested in environmental law. Today, we have anywhere from 30 to 50 students per year who out of a, so that's, you know, 10 to 15% of our class, very, very interested in environmental issues. At least 10 or 15 of them go on to have careers in environmental law. We have now have lawyers who have graduated from our program over the past several years in, you know, every important kind of legal job, uh, suing the Trump administration over the California waiver, um, suing the uh, Trump administration over the Keystone Pipeline, um, students, former students who are in the California Attorney General's office, who are in the Environmental Protection Agency, who are in the Department of Justice, who are in Congress conducting oversight hearings on climate issues. That's just a sea change, and I think it's only intensifying. One thing that I think that the Juliana versus the United States case has done has really shown a spotlight on how urgent kids urgently kids feel about these issues. And I think you know the 
the rise of the Greta movement and uh, the Green New Deal coming out of very young members of Congress is just demonstrating to those of us who are boomers, okay, boomer, um, is just how urgent this issue is because the, their lives are going to be affected by climate change in ways that you know we can only imagine and we won't be around to experience. So uh, again, sea change in uh, interest in environmental law, passion about climate change. I think we're seeing it in the presidential election. I think climate change for the first time is really playing an important role in how people are thinking about at least candidates on the Democratic side of uh, of the primary right now. We're you know we're start we're really seeing attention, and it might even shift some young voters away from Republican candidates, even though they might otherwise be sympathetic to Republican ideas because the Republican Party is not yet embracing the idea that we need to be doing anything about climate change, let alone be doing something urgent and big. I think we uh, we have seen some recent polling just in recent days that that showed that that young Republicans uh, very much diverge from the older leaders of their party on this specific issue. But yeah, we'll have to see uh, if and how that plays out at the polls. Again, Ann Carlson is a co-director of the UCLA Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Ann, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great. It was a pleasure to talk to all of you. If you need uh, thank you so much, two mediocre, former mediocre lawyers to come to your class and talk about how they could, you know, there's still light at the end of the tunnel. Shane and I are happy to uh, oblige you on that. <laughs> I'm sure Shane would like to make his case for some Republicans engaging on climate change. We didn't give him the opportunity, yeah. but. Yeah, and mediocre is the best compliment I've gotten all day out of Brandon, so I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Well, now's the time where we round out the show with our Say Something Nice segment of the episode. All right, Brandon, Shane, you got to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Brandon, you want to go first? Sure. We talked during this episode about the new World War Zero initiative. And so I wanted to say something nice about the Republicans who have contributed to this effort. Our sponsor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, is a leading you know, founder of it. Governor John Kasich uh, from Ohio uh, has joined. Cindy McCain has joined. Uh, and I know they're recruiting others. So I uh, appreciate them stepping up and trying to bring more attention to climate change. And then just as another side note, it's not really Republican-related, but I did see the Mr. Rogers movie over the holiday break. <laughs> uh, and it was phenomenal i think everybody in america should see this movie the documentary maybe, or the one with tom hanks no the one with tom hanks uh and i think it might help some of the healing that we need to have in this country because uh it was it was really well done nice shane well that's tough to follow um so i've got a couple and they're sort of very different but aimed at the same thing Mine will be former President Barack Obama and Michael Bloomberg. Um, yeah, weird, right, from, from me, but, but here's why. Both of them in different ways have tried to, I think, communicate to the far left that we're going we're gonna to make a lot more progress uh, if, we, if we, you know, sort of, I don't know if moderate's the right word because that's not what President Obama said. I think, you know, Bloomberg has been very clear that he thinks that the primary process is going off the rails and that he wants to find some sort of political center. I'm not a Democrat, but I do believe that our nation as a whole is a lot stronger when the debate is inclusive of, of sort of a broader swath of our, of our population. And so when I see people signaling to the primary field that, 
hey, let's get to where most Americans are. Let's talk about the things that most Americans care about. Um, again, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. I think, you know, uh, President Obama's comments were just that he doesn't think that uh, that the voting public is 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 sort of as far left as some of the candidates are. But uh, I'm just really encouraged because I'd like to see some political normalcy, whether my side wins or my side loses. I'm very much looking forward to a time where the debate is sort of a debate of ideas, not of uh, personalities or, or, or those types of conflicts or or um, larger sort of, you know, reformation of our entire system. So uh, not intended to be a backhanded, uh, say something nice at all, but I've just I've been getting a little bit worried watching these these primary debates. And those were two people who are, are seemingly very important. Um, one of them, of course, was the leader of the Democratic Party for eight years, uh, saying things that, that made me feel a little bit better. And I saw Frozen 2 over the break, which was also fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Frozen 2 as well. You guys say I don't follow anything in pop the culture. pop culture world, but I'm very hip with the elementary school audience. Uh, took my nurse, my nurse, took my niece to see it. Very, I'm very popular now. Yeah. And to your point, Jen, I was thinking through this, you know, I love how I think everyone loves how we all generally abide by traffic signs because we know that like it's mutually beneficial to like agree on like a set of general ways of engaging. And if we stop caring and if someone was suddenly like, you know what, I'm going to I'm not going to adhere to any stop signs and they just bowl through them, then obviously harm is done and it's hard to recover. And so I just wish we could get to a place on climate issues where there are a certain set of rules that we all know are just non-negotiable because they will harm us if we don't all abide by them. And so uh, I hope that that's where this conversation goes. I feel like that's kind of where this World War Zero initiative is going is like, let's all agree on a certain set of basic understanding about the climate crisis. And let's move forward from there and debate exactly what route to take. But we know that there are like signals and signs that we're all going to abide by, for instance, that climate change is real and, and a threat. And I do wonder, you know, if the world throws out those kinds of markers, does it become only a more dangerous place? So that was my Thanksgiving thought. I don't know if the analogy totally holds, but there you have it. All right. And we'll end the show there by saying thank you to Victoria Simon, our producer, for making the show possible. And remember, you can find Political Climate on all the podcasting platforms. So Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, go there, sign Cyber up, Monday. leave a review. Cyber Monday. We're on sale. We're actually free <laughs> all the time. Thanks to our uh, fantastic sponsor, the Schwarzenegger Institute. And with that, we will end this show and speak to you next week. <laughs>